Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air, and hard to believe we are halfway through the week. But I will say this, we have really learned a lot about Shays' Rebellion and Leonard L. Richards' book about the American Revolution's final battle. Well, we have a lot more to discuss, and what we're going to be discussing in this podcast episode is the full-scale affair, that is, the full-scale battle that took place. Now, I must say this, that as we all know, this rebellion was not an isolated incident, considering that um, six uh, courthouses in the state had been uh, closed by insurgent forces. Four of them being in the western part of the state, where the majority of the um, conflict um, has its origins and where it's still taking place. The other two incidents being well to the east, but yet um, there are those whom are not happy with the uh, current um, governing um, rulers, that is the the current uh, state of affairs uh, by top official leaders in uh, Massachusetts, most notably with uh, Governor James Bowden. So our first leadoff question will be the following for this uh, podcast uh, episode, and it's going to start with Governor James Bowden. What did Governor Bowden authorize at the start of January 1787? Uh, at the start, we'll go with the date of January 4th. What did he authorize without approval from the legislature? Did you hear that, folks? Without approval. You know, it's one thing for a governor to want to um, propose an idea, but he's got, he or she, of course, in today's times, you know, governors can be both men and women in the United States, but we must remember the 18th century, uh, the only um, people whom are uh, running the show in terms of legislative affairs in their um, respective states are men. So it's one thing for a governor to propose an idea, but there must be consent from the legislature. In other words, the governor doesn't have the, the um, power to uh, make laws, the legislature does. So, Governor Bowden authorizes on January 4th, 1787, without approval from the legislature, he hires an army to be led by former Revolutionary War General Benjamin Lincoln and putting down the rebellion. Governor Bowden requested 4,400 men to join General Lincoln's call of duty. 4,400 men, that's a lot. Of, that, that's a lot. The bigger question is, where are you going to get those men from? Are they going to come from the western part of the state? If they do come, they're going to be in the minority. It would probably be, be fair to say that uh, the majority of the men that would even want to participate in this would come from the eastern part of the state. So, due to the legislature... So the legislature has not been given proper consent on this, or let alone they've not heard of this idea. But due to the legislature having not prohibited Lincoln's army, that is, they haven't outlawed it, Governor Bowden instead, rather than going to the legislature, 
he turns to businessmen in Boston for funding. Okay? There are a lot of businessmen in Boston whom have perhaps strong ties to the mercantile economy. The objective, um, who, who would like to take a guess at how much money it would have taken to have raised an army? Was it uh, 5,000 pounds? Was it um, 10,000 or 6,000? The answer is choice C. That was Governor Bowden's um, objective with the support of businessmen in Boston was to um, raise 6,000 pounds. Now, I don't know uh, what that would be in terms of uh, the equivalent to modern-day American, American money. However, I do know that Governor Bowden contributed 250 pounds, whereas prominent banker William Phillips gave 300 pounds. However, there were many in the eastern part of the state who did have ties to the mercantile economy, or just let alone to shipping, that were very hesitant to give away their money. To me, this sounds like a very fishy scheme, or what we might refer to in today's modern-day world as a Ponzi scheme. I learned uh, very briefly when my wife and I went to Jamestown uh, the previous weekend, uh, back at the end of last month, that um, many uh, well-to-do um, people in England gave money left and right to the uh, London Company of Virginia, whom uh, financed the voyage to the New World. Well, once the uh, English arrived to what we now know as Jamestown, they didn't strike gold overnight. Of course, rumors had it, and the belief was that uh, the settlers were going to find all these rich natural resources and that everyone would benefit um, from the profits. Well, the problem is that there was no gold to be found, and it took about five to seven years at best before a cash crop truly took off being that of tobacco. So the bottom line is that uh, one of the um, uh, interpreters or uh, docents at Jamestown uh, said to my wife and I that, um, that the London Company of Virginia was like the equivalent of a modern-day Ponzi scheme. People threw out money left and right but never saw any direct results. So, and, and we can say that this is the case here. Governor Bowden is desperate to put the rebellion down, and he knows that he's going to um, probably meet with opposition in the legislature, so that's why he went behind their backs and decided to take it this uh, matter up with businessmen in Boston. However, uh, General Lincoln felt it was necessary to put a temporary halt on further contributions. But I should say this, over a hundred men did contribute to Governor Bowden's um, scheme. Now, when I say over a hundred, uh, you know, one could say, is that close to 200? Well, how many, how many of y'all would like to know exactly how many men did contribute to Governor Bowden's scheme? I'll give you a hint. The number is between 125 and 175. The answer is 153. So, if you think about it, yes, 153 men contributing um, may seem great, but not everyone had 
the money, or, well, yes, a lot of these men may have had the money, but they were reluctant to give away large sums of money. So the 6,000 pounds uh, benchmark never got achieved, to put it in a nutshell. Let's learn a little bit more about Benjamin Lincoln here, given that he is a former Revolutionary War officer. What unique honor got bestowed upon General Lincoln during the British surrender at Yorktown, October 19, 1781? General Washington, or I should say George Washington, gave Benjamin Lincoln the honor of receiving Lord Charles Cornwallis's sword of surrender. Uh, so remember, folks, when uh, when a surrender took place from a battle, the uh, the losing side was forced to drop their weapons, and that meant that they had agreed to a, like a ceasefire to end all hostilities. So Benjamin Lincoln, though, he may not have been the equivalent to a, a George Washington or a um, Nathaniel Green or, or, or a Marquis de Lafayette. However, uh, Lincoln's military career is one that can be best described as, um, as shaky, in other words, fluctuation of highs and lows. Probably the lowest moment for uh, Benjamin Lincoln was uh, in May of 1780 when the British had uh, launched a full-scale assault. They had already um, invaded the South in late 1778, but by 1780 they are uh, making good on their promise. They've already conquered Savannah, Georgia, but now the British have um, conquered Charleston, South Carolina. Benjamin Lincoln had a force of probably about 5,000 men, and there were many who felt it would be it would have been best for him not to have engaged in a um, in a war, or not just in a war, but in a, a confrontation with the British Army. For one, he was outnumbered. On the other hand, Benjamin Lincoln did not want to be frowned upon as being a coward. In other words, he wanted to prove, despite being outnumbered, that he could still put up a good fight with. Um, Sir Henry Clinton's uh, forces, and you got to give the man credit for at least um, willing to try. But at the same time, when you are outnumbered by say five thousand, you know Clinton's forces have at best between eight and ten thousand. Those numbers don't look good against you. So it would have been better for General Lincoln not to have um, engaged in this um, battle because. Not only did he lose, but he was forced to surrender the army to the British. And those and some of those men were jailed, and many of them um, agreed to uh, what's called a parole. In other words, they agreed to, um, to, a, um, to a, um, a terms of neutrality where they um, remained um, where they remained in their uh, villages and did not take up arms with rebel forces, but they uh, basically stayed out of uh, trouble. Well, long story short, uh, Sir Henry Clinton uh, reneged on that promise um, before leaving and um, angered many who had um, signed these parole agreements to where, long story short, they uh, took up arms against the crown. 
So, yes, it was a uh, low point in uh, Benjamin Lincoln's uh, military career with the surrender of Charleston. However, um, he was well-liked by many um, officers, most notably George Washington and Nathaniel Green, and he did have many connections, which also helped out. Well, connections are good, no matter how uh, well they are, um, it never hurts to have them. Did contributors uh, to Governor Bowdoin's plan express interest in joining Lincoln's army? I know most of you are probably thinking yes, but it turns out it's the opposite. But for, and how so? Well, for um, men whom were tied or rather linked to Boston's high society, which was a very, very small elite percentage, a.k.a. the aristocracy, the most well-to-do of Boston society, they were the only ones who received high-ranking status uh, positions within uh, Lincoln's army. So just because you had contributed, it didn't automatically mean that you uh, were going to be accommodated um, in a manner that you would have expected. And did ordinary soldiers who contributed receive less enticements? Yes. So just because you contribute, it doesn't mean that you're going to get the same enticement or let alone enticements as uh, someone above you who is linked to, um, in this case, Boston's high society. Where did the majority of recruits from Lincoln's army come from? Well, I can tell you this much. It's not from the West, but it was from Eastern County, Eastern counties. One of them, I know most notably, being uh, Middlesex County. The three eastern counties were to supply 2,000 men, whereas in the western counties would provide 2,400 men. So Governor Bowdoin truly does believe that there would be enough men in the west whom would actually be willing to um, help um, quash this rebellion and get the state back under order. So let's now get a grand picture of, of what's going to ensue. General Benjamin Lincoln's army now has marched, has left east to march west. They were to be joined by 1,200 men from Worcester County, Worcester being about 50 miles west of Boston, how many, do you, how many men out of 1,200 do you all think showed up? I'll give you some numbers, or, or choices, rather. Choice uh, A, 400. Choice B, 550. Choice C, 700. Or choice D, 600. The answer is 600. So that's half of the 1,200 men whom showed up. This expedition started um, on January 19th of 1787, just two weeks after uh, Governor Bowdoin, um, after Governor Bowdoin uh, devised this plan to, that is, um, get an army established without the legislature's consent. Now, once the Eastern Brigades arrived to Springfield, they would be met up with 1,200 men from Hampshire County which is home to um, Northampton, 
but only uh, 400 of these men showed up. So in the end, uh, General Lincoln only got 1,400 men. <laughs> and Governor Bowdoin wanted 4,400. So talk about a huge deficit. Talk about a, a 3,000 um, deficit. A deficit of 3,000 men, let alone. Fewer than originally expected, that is 1,400 men, fewer than originally expected, the backcountry, that is um, the territories uh, well to the west of Boston, the backcountry, many in the backcountry had the greatest of fears. And what do you think one of those fears could have been? It's something that even our forefathers will have to contend with in the not-so-far-distant future, the presence of standing armies. You know, in order for a government to function in times of war or in times of um, uncertainty, there has to be an army. And if there's conflict by the waters, you've got to have a navy. I can tell you this much, when our um, nation was first um, established, finally when a cons the Constitution went into effect, there were many who actually preferred a navy over an army. How so? Because a navy is needed not only at home, but a navy is needed abroad. But is a standing army needed abroad? No. Considering that the United States even before 1787, that is when the Constitution is, uh, gets um, signed by uh, those attending uh, Philadelphia, we really are a, a third world nation. We, we're not anywhere even close to being what we would call first world uh, status, first, first world nation status. But the biggest, one of the biggest fears is the presence of a standing army. You know, it's one thing for a standing army to be present in a time of war, but what about in times of peace? Well, in 1786 into 1787 and before the post-revolutionary war era, it's not peaceful, folks. After General Lincoln's army moved west, who became Massachusetts's new villain per state rulers? Okay, maybe I should uh, give you all the answer you've been looking for. None other than Daniel Shays. Especially since he now commanded the largest insurgent regiment. Maybe that's why it's, it's called Shays' Rebellion. It, may, it, it can't be so much for one reason alone, but what I um, was really shocked at shocked to find out that is is there are a lot of stories behind Daniel Shays that were not uh, shared until um, probably about 20 years ago when uh, Leonard L. Richards discussed um, discussed them in his book. As a matter of fact, Leonard L. Richards probably may have been the first of his time or of his generation to actually go about debunking the old theories or myths behind what really started this rebellion. Let's find out about some uh, contradiction, um, or let alone contradictory um, reports 
or uh, views about Daniel Shays. We already know that he was born in 1747. We know that he um, served in the American Revolution. We know that he uh, didn't join um, the um, the uh, what do you call it, event that uh, led to the uh, closure of the Northampton uh, County Courthouse. The reason, one of the reasons why he didn't join was because he was a newcomer to the area. He and his wife were trying to uh, get themselves established. You can't blame him for that, although he was involved with the Committee of Safety. But at the same time, he's trying to find out, you know, where he really belongs. So, let's find out this much. The authorities blamed Shays for orchestrating the entire rebellion. However, stories about him from multiple sources have proved conflicting. And I said that earlier, but it doesn't hurt to say it again. Let's find out why multiple sources have, pro have proven conflicting, proven to be conflicting, pardon me. One account portrayed Daniel Shays as a man whose intentions involved burning all of Boston to the ground, whereas another account claimed he joined the rebellion because of past military experience. Well, I can tell you this right here, that Daniel Shays didn't have any intentions of wanting to burn Boston to the ground. He did he didn't like how the rulers were uh, governing in Massachusetts. He wasn't the only one. He was a majority. He was in the majority on that. But it doesn't state anywhere where he wanted to burn all of Boston to the ground. In other words, he didn't want to lead. He didn't uh, plan on sending insurgents into Boston to uh, wipe out the government. On the other hand, I could see how he that the um, fact or um, claim that he joined the rebellion because of past military experience does have um, some validity because he served in the uh, American Revolution. He um, fought at uh, Lexington and um, Bunker Hill. He um, fought at Saratoga. Um, in, uh, I mean, he fought in uh, various uh, battles, so he was no stranger to war. Matter of fact, the man was even born before the French and Indian War broke out. So, I mean, he's he war itself is not a stranger to Daniel Shays, but he is different. One reason why he's different, or I should say that he stands out from the rest, is because Shays himself had to work his way up through the ranks. Considering he lacked prestige and connections. So, Shays knew of men whom had prestige, they had connections, so they rose higher up in, within the ranks faster than uh, Shays himself. But did Shays have a connection in regards to how he entered the Revolutionary War? Yes, the request came from a fellow named Reuben Dickinson from Amherst. So over time, Daniel Shays did attain different ranks. He became a sergeant and an officer. And he performed so well that a fellow um, prominent leader 
or not just leader, but a fellow prominent officer of the war whom um, was very close to George Washington honored Daniel Shays with a sword. And who do you think that officer could have been? Was it Nathaniel Green? Was it Henry Knox or Marquis de Lafayette? The answer is Marquis de Lafayette. Here's something else that, um, that has um, been at the forefront of uh, debate in terms of Shays' image. Did Daniel Shays keep the sword that was given to him for his, um, for his uh, work on the battlefield? the sword that was given to him by the Marquis de Lafayette. Believe it or not, folks, um, Daniel, Sh Daniel Shays sold the sword. Why would he sell the sword? Was he doing it for gratification? No. Do you think he was doing it to um, demonstrate rebellion? No. Do you think he was unhappy with the war itself, no. Then why did he sell the sword? He sold the sword to help pay off personal debts. Well, Daniel Shays was probably not the only soldier or let alone officer who was uh, facing financial troubles at some point during the American Revolutionary War or throughout the entire duration of the war. I can't tell you this much. Uh, George Washington, it took him 10 years to get out of debt, but fortunately he got out of debt altogether before the shots were heard around the world. Washington, uh, not to get off track here, but uh, to make a good point, George Washington, um, by 1765, um, began to realize that tobacco was no longer the um, profitable cash crop. For one, it depleted the soil Two, it was very um, labor-intensive. And three, he had um, lots of uh, issues with brokers in England whom were, um, whom were having greater say over his um, product, labor productivity, or not just labor productivity, but over his uh, commodity that, um, he, that he truly believed was, uh, wasn't right. They were the ones controlling the prices. They were the ones that pretty much had the final say to where Washington felt like he was no longer part of the equation. So in other words, to put it in a nutshell, George Washington's uh, first steps towards independence from England was, we've all been told this for years, was political. But it actually turns out, folks, that it was economical. So he chose to separate from England initially for economic reasons. And of course, um, in 1774, the first Continental Congress convening in Philadelphia, what, what did they agree to? Twelve colonies met, the exception of Georgia. You know, Georgia's still fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation. But the twelve colonies that were there all agreed to the non-importation agreement, which pretty much prohibited British goods from coming into colonial America along with exporting goods out of colonial America to England. So, um, back to uh, Daniel Shays, but, uh, but I figured I would still 
mention to you all about George Washington because, you know, Washington had debt. Shays had debt. I mean, nobody was immune from debt. For some people, debt was a way of life. But for Daniel Shays, yes, he sold Lafayette's, the sword that Lafayette gave to him in order to sell off personal debts. How did some people in the community see this? Some saw this as an action of betrayal, proving that Shays himself couldn't afford to keep the sword and others viewed it as being classless. You know, in other words, if you knew that you were... Some people probably would have thought to themselves, okay, if Daniel Shays knew all along that he was in debt, why accept something that he knew deep down he could not um, have? In other words, if you know that you um, can't afford something that's beyond your means and someone is still trying to offer it to you, is it something that you should accept? Well, that's up to you. But at the same time, if you know deep down that if it's something you can live without, then, then politely say to the individual, hey, this is not something I don't need. I think somebody else would, would be uh, better off having it if it's something that they need. It's just something that I can learn to live without. But of course, you know, yes, what a prestigious honor that was to have um, been bestowed to Daniel Shays. That is a sword from Lafayette. But at the same time, if you ask me, was it a classless thing that Daniel Shays did? I don't believe so. I don't believe he was being ignorant at all. But at the same time, should he have maybe said to Lafayette, I don't believe I can accept this. But at the same time, if he told Lafayette right there that he couldn't accept it because of financial purposes, I'm not sure how Lafayette himself would have um, viewed the matter. So, you know, we can all say one thing in the present, but at the same time, we can't apply 18th century thinking or decision making to what we know in today's um, fast paced uh, world. Moving on, um, we're going to talk about the federal arsenal in Springfield. We've mentioned that before, but I really would like to get into it more. What year was this federal arsenal in Springfield built? Was it built before um, 1776? Or was it built after the American Revolutionary War ended? Or did it get built between 1775 and 1776? The answer is between 1775 and 1776, but, most, but more preferably 1776. The arsenal was built to supply weapons for Revolutionary War troops throughout New England. So, in other words, not just for Massachusetts, we've got um, New Hampshire, uh, Connecticut. We could say Rhode Island, too. Now, this arsenal is a state-of-the-art um, thing for its time. This arsenal contains 7,000 new muskets with bayonets. There are older muskets, too, and then there are 1,300 barrels of powder. So this arsenal, folks, I mean, this is, this is the real deal here. If this arsenal were taken by insurgents, then how is the state of Massachusetts going to be able to defend itself from within 
and even from possible invaders coming from the outside into the state to team up with insurgents. So, who is going to be the um, next uh, big uh, leader to um, take to take on Daniel Shays and the um, insurgents? Is it Benjamin Lincoln? Or is it General William Shepard? Or I should say Major General William Shepard? The answer is Major General William Shepard. He has a force of 1,200 militiamen whom... Um, whom in the end beat Daniel Shays and the other insurgents to, to the Springfield Arsenal. Let's uh, find out a little bit more about this uh, fella. Uh, General William Shepard is a gentleman farmer. In other words, he's got more like 100 acres or more. He's from nearby Westfield in western Massachusetts. He had nearly um, eight years of military experience, served as a colonel for most of the Revolutionary War. Let's ask a question, let's think of this question right here in terms of um, who has the right to accessibility. Did William Shepard have as much of a right to seize the Springfield Arsenal just like Daniel Shays and his followers had? No. The Springfield Arsenal folks didn't belong to the state of Massachusetts. If it doesn't belong to the state, it belongs to the federal government under that fledgling Articles of Confederation. Did William Shepard, Major General William Shepard, did he need written authorization? Yes. But whom did he need written authorization from? Was it from George Washington? Was it from um, was it from um, Benjamin Lincoln, or was it from Henry Knox? The answer is the following: Henry Knox, who was a Secretary of War. Well, remember, folks, we don't have we don't have telephones back then, so um, William Shepard, you know, he can't call up Henry Knox and say, "Hey, I need uh, I need for you to fax over." written authorization on letterhead stating that you give me permission to take my force to where the Springfield Arsenal is at and to seize it before the insurgents can even get close to laying their hands on it. So, okay, so he's not able to get uh, instant communication with Henry Knox, so what will Shepard go about doing? He goes about arming his men with arsenal weapons, including fortifying the arsenal's cannons. Sometimes you got to do things even without consent. It doesn't always mean that, um, that it's going to be to your advantage, but this is a situation where it's uh, do or die, and you don't probably have a whole lot of time on your side. Because, you know, for General William Shepard, he doesn't know where these insurgents are coming. You know, they're like mosquitoes, kind of like from Paul Revere's ride, how um, at Lexington and Concord, most notably at Concord, militia forces were coming from all directions, uh, making life very hard on the elephant, who was the British Empire, or let alone the British um, 
infantry. So in this case, the mosquitoes are the insurgents, and Benjamin Lincoln's forces, along with William Shepard's forces, they're, they're like an elephant, but they've got to be moving to be one step ahead of the mosquitoes. So as for uh, these rebel insurgents, are they all under one regiment or multiple regiments? The answer is multiple. So when I say multiple regiments, fo regiments folks, could that be two regiments at best? Yes. But how about rebel forces in this case being divided into three regiments? Each was led by a seasoned, experienced revolutionary officer with five or more years' experience. The rebels might have had more men, but what were they lacking? They were lacking in close contact. In other words, they lacked close contact amongst one another. So in other words, they didn't have um, the same kind of communication layout plans like officers had when the shots were heard around the world at Lexington and Concord uh, 11, year, 11, 12 years earlier. So Daniel Shays' forces are in Palmer. Eli Parsons' forces are in Chicopee. Luke Day's forces will be in West Springfield. All three regiments were forced to um, use dispatch messengers back and forth to stay in touch. Gosh, um, that's that's tough because, um, you know, it's one thing to send dispatch messengers out back and forth to relay information, but even they alone can't be the final answer to resolving everything. So all three regiments had originally planned for a three-tier assault on the arsenal come January 25th, 1787, three weeks after Governor James Bowden had instituted um, his scheme for um, getting an army uh, to put down the rebellion without the legislature's consent. However, Luke Day changed plans to where he issued an ultimatum to General Shepard in laying down the arms an attack, and the attack date itself got changed to a day the day after being the 26th. <laughs> okay, but here's the problem. Daniel Shays and Eli Parsons never got the note. It seems like uh, Luke Day preferred to live in the moment. And to make matters worse, the message got intercepted by Sh um, William Shepard's forces. January 25th, Daniel Shays and Eli Parsons' regiments are marching through four feet of snow to, get, to try to get to this uh, Springfield arsenal, folks. Four feet of snow. And I don't believe these men have state-of-the-art um, boots for trekking through the snow. They probably don't even have uh, state-of-the-art um, clothing either to... Um, to adapt to this kind of climate. But then again, all these men are from Massachusetts. They know what it's like to deal with cold weather, but at the same time, to be trudging along in four feet of snow, I don't see how you're going to be um, fully prepared in the end to achieve your final objective. Sadly, these um, Shays' and Parsons' regiments got repulsed by Shepard's forces via muskets and cannons, 
Four men died with many wounded, and the rear of Shay's army had fled. So yes, not many men died, but but there was enough um, fear installed to where Shay's men simply um, fled. After General Lincoln's forces successfully defended Springfield Arsenal, where did they follow Shays' forces to next? They went 20 miles north to the town of Petersham. On the night of February 3rd, Lincoln's men caught Shays' group totally off guard to where attack was imminent. However, the snow depths prevented further action that allowed Daniel Shays and other rebel leaders to escape north into New Hampshire and Vermont. Okay, it wasn't a full-scale attack, but Shays and his men were caught off so bad that they had no other choice but to retreat. And it's one thing now to go into New Hampshire and Vermont, but think about this. They're having to start all over from scratch. Lincoln's surprise attack at Petersham bolstered his reputation to where the incident was viewed as being the end of Shays' rebellion. But at the same time, many people began favoring harsh measures to be instituted upon all the dissidents. We'll find out here soon what those harsh um, measures would entail. What piece of legislation got enacted nearly two weeks after the Petersham event? How about the Disqualification Act? This is a good one. This act prohibited all rebels from serving on juries, to holding town offices, to being forbidden from voting for civil or military officers for three years. And the law itself also barred rebels from various lines of employment like schoolmasters, like being a schoolmaster to being an innkeeper, a.k.a. running a tavern. I find it, I, I, I can agree about being on the innkeeper part because to a degree, uh, you know, it's one thing to run a tavern, but the last thing a tavern keeper ought to be doing is... Um, inciting propaganda that would um, that would want um, that would make guests rather um, decide to uh, take up arms to where they would um, engage in rebellious activity that would uh, put a community in grave danger to where the well-being of the community was a do-or-die situation so I could see how um, the legislature was very hesitant on not wanting to allow rebels, rebel um, individuals to uh, perhaps become innkeepers. And even schoolmasters, you know, being teachers, okay, your job is to educate the children, not educate them on doing things that are unbecoming to, to the greater society. Despite having escaped north to New Hampshire and Vermont, Daniel Shays, and his rebel followers had no luck in obtaining any support whatsoever for further rebellious actions. They tried, but, but no um, support whatsoever. It could be that um, in New Hampshire, of course, Vermont's not even a state yet, but Vermont borders 
New Hampshire, New York, and Massachusetts. People in Vermont who are there have connections to leaders in Massachusetts. The same with uh, New Hampshire. They know what's going on, but they also know that if Daniel Shays and his men try to um, urge them to join and sell other secrets, the opposition can find a way to get people over into the Massachusetts state line to uh, warn the um, state leaders. And then what do you know it? Then what do you know? They've got to send out another group of um, forces to put down any uh, potential uh, rebellious activity that could be even worse than what's already happened. Despite quashing what was left of the rebellious activity in the Berkshires, which is um, in the furthest um, western part of Massachusetts going closer to New York State, did General Benjamin Lincoln support the Disqualification Act? Turns out, folks, that he didn't. Lincoln himself viewed the act as a direct violation to fundamental Republican principles. Okay, yes, rebel um, individuals or leaders may have uh, committed wrongdoings that were not um, appropriate. But at the same time, should all of them be punished for their actions. Yes, there could be a punishment um, doled out, but should um, but should a handful of the uh, rebels who participated be barred from serving on juries to holding um, elected um, office, office positions, as well as uh, forbidding them to vote? There's a lot of questions to take into consideration. Benjamin Lincoln, though, wanted to go easy on the rebels of rank and file. However, he favored swifter measures for insurgents whom had failed to surrender, including outsiders as well. In other words, the insurgents whom, whom were told, you know, to, hey, surrender, you know, don't engage in any more uh, rebellious activity, those people didn't listen. And those people, because they didn't listen, they were the ones. They are the ones that probably should receive a uh, greater punishment, given that they had um, perhaps recruited those below to uh, join their cause. In other words, they didn't serve as a good example to the greater community. Now, as the rebellion calmed down, how did authorities go about getting Massachusetts under control? Two policies got instituted. Number one, for ordinary rebels, privates and sergeants, and number two, the leaders. Few privates were qualified for unconditional pardons. Many of them would have to prove they deserted in the insurgent cause along with joining state militia before February 1st or take an oath of allegiance in response to Benjamin Lincoln's proclamation from January 30th. Everyone else had to make amends by giving up their arms to admitting they rebelled against the state and its rulers to taking an oath of allegiance. Okay, if you give up your arms, that's one, that's a good starting, um, that's good starting ground for um, making amends. But I also would say that if you admitted to rebelling against the state and its rulers, 
then you've taken an, an even greater step in taking that oath of allegiance, then I would say you have accomplished um, making amends. Of course, making amends isn't something that happens overnight where everyone lives happily ever after, but, but making amends, like giving up arms to admitting that you had committed mistakes, like rebelling against the state and its rulers, that goes a long way towards proving that you are, have shown remorse for your actions. Now, um, what happens to Governor Bowden in April 1787? Choice A, um, did he die unexpectedly? Choice B, was he assassinated? Choice C, did he lose re-election? He lost re-election. And here's a bonus right here. Whom did, um, whom defeated, uh, Governor Bowden in the election. Choice A, was it um, Paul Revere? Choice B, was it Elbridge Jerry? Or choice C, John Hancock? The answer is the following, John Hancock, choice C, the former Continental Congress president. So how about that, folks? John Hancock is now the new governor after Hancock's victory, the new legislature, okay, we've got new people serving the legislature. That's a good thing. The new legislature went about restoring rights to nearly 4,000 Shaysites, that is, followers of Daniel Shays. Hancock gave full pardons to many men, but there were those like Daniel Shays and eight other rebel leaders whom were excluded as well as those who shot at government supporters along with having violated their oaths. So there were people, folks, who, um, who yes, took an oath of allegiance, but they either reneged on it or they just um, never wanted to take an oath to begin with. Now, there was a lot of um, discussion, or um, information, rather, that Leonard uh, Richards mentioned about... Uh, those who got indicted, uh, that to me I felt would have taken an eternity to have covered, but I did uh, mention, I, have, I am going to mention a few things here. In Middlesex County, being eastern Massachusetts, 15 to 20 men got indicted, but out west in Worcester County, 200 men were charged with crimes ranging from high treason, insurrection, riot. You know, when I think of treason, I think of committing um, an act of uh, betrayal um, to the country you represent. And, of course, when I think of insurrection, I think of, shoot, what happened back on January the 6th at the United States Capitol. That was an insurrection. Now, um, to end this uh, podcast uh, for this uh, episode... Was, was Governor John Hancock the opposite of his predecessor, James Bowden? Yes. There, he was opposite of Governor Bowden um, in a fair number of ways, but especially when it came to severe punishments. There were many in Massachusetts in 1787, right after John Hancock became governor, who 
firmly believed that public hangings of rebel leaders should be done. On the other hand, John Hancock was smart enough to, um, to um, view the matter differently. He believed that if more rebels got hung, then it would lead to further unrest. In other words, if 50 people got hung, for example, who's not to say that there would be even more riots in western Massachusetts as well as in outlying towns and villages outside of Boston? For John Hancock, yes, restoring order is important, but there is a, he also knows there is a right way to do it and there's also a wrong way. He doesn't want to make the same mistakes that, govern, that, the, um, that his predecessor made. He doesn't believe in um, executing uh, those whom uh, challenge the government when, when a law or an act itself um, seems unjust in the eyes of many. But let me ask you all this. Did Daniel Shays get hung no, he didn't. Although John Hancock um, was hesitant to um, issue him a pardon at first, um, in the end, Daniel Shays, along with the, with at least seven or eight other men, or a reb, uh, key rebel leaders, would never face the gallows for hanging. Well, when I'm on the air again next with you all, we're going to talk a little bit more about some other um things. Uh, like, for example, we, historians do know that, um, that there were some people who got hung and that there were punishments. But I can tell you this, that it wasn't mass hanging. After all, as I said just a moment ago, if, had John, Han John Hancock was smart enough to know that, hey, if we were to hang mass numbers of people who participated in this rebellion, then it would just lead to further unrest in the state. There already was enough unrest with Governor James Bowden. For Governor John Hancock, he's trying to reduce the um, he's trying to reduce all of the um, existing turmoil that had um, occurred under his predecessor's watch. Well, thank you again for letting me be on the air with you all and sharing with you all um, historical subjects that. Yes, we do know information about, but yet we probably weren't taught as much about these subjects when we were coming through school. But luckily, history has been reteaching us in the last 20 to 25 years um, a new light of information on famous events that now make us appreciate the real outcomes behind them. I look forward to being on the air again next time with you all. Uh, have a good rest of your evening or day, wherever you all are in, around the world. Take care for now and stay safe.